I'm Steve Pink. And I'm Bella Gonzalez, and you're listening to Cinepod, the cinematography podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben. How you doing? I'm doing awesomely. How are you doing? Awesomely? That, that's even better than our usual. That's great. It's quite an adverb. <laughs> well, hey, Ben, who's on the show today? We have a, a doubleheader, something we don't do very often. Uh, we have director Steve Pink and cinematographer Bella Gonzalez from The Wheel, which you can stream right now wherever you stream movies. Uh, you can see it on Amazon Prime. You can see it on YouTube. You can see it on Apple TV+. And uh, it's something we don't make anymore. You know, in my day, when I was coming up, when I was your age, we had a lot of character movies in the indie film world that would play at the art houses and they would win awards at Sundance. And then we'd hear about them and we don't really make those kinds of movies anymore. And uh, Steve Pink, probably best known for Hot Tub Time Machine, made this very heartfelt, deep, personal story of uh, these four characters. And it's lovely. And uh, Bella Gonzalez, who shot it, just really did an amazing job. And it's, uh, I think, people who listen to this, if you are someone who's looking to make an indie film or you're just starting out or, you know, you're in film school and you want to make, like, character pieces, listen to this interview because they talk about how to get into the characters, how to see the movie from the character's point of view and how to sort of let that inform the filmmaking as opposed to uh, miles and miles of previs and storyboards. Nothing against that. That's a great way to do it too but when you're telling a really personal story about people and emotions maybe that's not the approach you want to take that sounds awesome i wasn't part of that interview so i am looking forward to uh, checking that out and also i know we don't usually talk about the war stories they both have amazing war stories and i don't want to ruin steve pink's but it does involve a uh, squirrel with mental issues <laughs> Well, uh, I, I'm sure that when the next War Story episode uh, comes out, we will all enjoy that. I know that we've been collecting them, so we've got uh, quite a few to look forward to. And maybe one or two will come out of the archives uh, for our next War Stories episode. So, uh, Ilya, we wanted to take a little break from all the heavy news and the somberness for this week's Close Focus. What do, what do you want to talk about? You're damn right we do. And we want to kind of have a little bit of that, you know, throwback to the feel good times when you and I were, were coming up and talking about movies they don't really make anymore. Uh, they, they do make plenty of biopics, but I am willing to say that there aren't too many biopics like Weird, the new oh my Weird, God. <laughs> Weird Al biopic coming to Roku on the Roku channel, which, which I don't in, know how in itself, that, that's news. Yeah. Like I'm like, I don't even know how to watch something on the Roku channel. I, I know it exists. I know it's possible for some smart TVs and different uh, app devices out there to get the Roku channel. But uh, I think that the people at Roku are uh, thinking this might get some subscribers or maybe some more hardware sales. Maybe they'll sell a few Roku boxes. Mm. But uh, I'm excited about this weird. Uh, the Weird Al Yankovic story. How would you describe that trailer? Oh, man. I mean, it, it's hard to describe. I mean, it's Daniel Radcliffe as uh, Weird Al. And I believe Rain Wilson as Dr. Demento, who kind of put Weird Al on the map. 
And whatever you're doing, you should probably just stop it now and go watch the trailer for Weird because you kind of go, what would a Weird Al biopic be? Weird Al is a clean living. I believe he's a vegetarian, not a drinker, family guy, very squeaky clean person. And all the tropes of the musical biopic are about people going into drug addiction and abusive behaviors and ruining their lives. And we all know Weird Al didn't do any of that. And so what they've done in the trailer is painted him, I would almost compare it to Pee-wee's Big Adventure, where they've made somehow Weird Al look like a bad boy. But it's like so many layers of irony on top of themselves, because we know that that's not what he was. That wasn't his (laughs) image ever. Uh, And he's in the trailer. Like, this is obviously with his full participation. But it's it's almost like a Weird Al song. It's Weird Al's sense of humor imposed on his own life. It's it's very uh, being John Malkovich in a way. Yeah, I I would say it's it's a parody biopic. It's a parody of the biopics as only Weird Al. Yeah, weird yeah, like like do. Walk Hard, uh, the the Dewey Cox story, sort of like that, but about a real person. And it's mm-hmm. directed by uh, Eric Apple. I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but if you look through his biography, he made another uh, short film version of this many years ago, starring Aaron Paul as oh, Weird wow. Al. <laughs> and now I, I want to see that. Yeah, and uh, it also I just want to uh, shout out that it's cinematography by Ross Reich. Reich. Not sure how to pronounce his name either, but uh, <laughs> I honestly cannot wait to watch this. Maybe Ross will come on the show and uh, tell me how to pronounce his name and fill us in on all of the juicy details about making this. Uh, it's like there isn't enough meta for how meta this looks. <laughs> well, well, we'll get Alana Cody on that, see if we can source him and get him to come on and, and talk about it, because I'm now totally jonesing to see this. This easily could have been a short end, but it's now our close focus because Really, the trailer is epic and it doesn't take itself seriously at all. But at the same time, it's spot on. It's serious in its humor and it's sort of parody humor and and the biopics that you're sort of used to seeing. Uh, But it's not just like, you know, it's not a scary movie. It's not like trying to make fun of the genre. It's just done in the way that Weird Al would do it. Now, Ben, you know, I worked for Weird Al once, right? I did not know that you had worked for Weird Al once. I did. I spent... One very long day working for Weird Al, reading and answering his fan mail. What? (laughs) How did I not know this about you? Uh, A friend of mine, uh, a friend of yours, probably too. You probably met him, uh, if not through me, you know, through the same circles. But Jesse Mackey, Jesse Mackey, when I. uh, Jesse is my neighbor. Jesse lives in my neighborhood. I, I, I say hi to him when I'm walking my dog all the time. Well, Jesse and I went to college together. And when I first moved to L.A., he's like. Hey, Ilya, I know you just moved to town and uh, I don't know if you're doing anything on Sunday, but you want to come like read Weird Al's fan mail for a day <laughs> and like answer his fan mail and you know, write to his, you know, you know, do different <laughs> things for his for his fans. And I was like, uh, welcome to L.A. I guess that's just what you do in L.A. You start answering celebrities fan mail. So sure enough, I went over to meet with Jesse and Jesse was actually not. Uh, this wasn't his primary gig at, at all. His friend was Weird Al's assistant, and she had like three months of mail. She was like, oh, man, I'm so behind, and I need, just need to like plow through this, and I'm, we're bringing in some extra people, so yep. get into it. And so here it is, this massive thing, and it's like, hey, if they ask for a headshot, here are the headshots. If they if they want to like tell a story, like, you know, here, put it over here. If it's, you know, it's this thing or that thing. And I'll tell you my favorite Weird Al story that, that came from that. Someone... I want to say like an 11 year old boy 
in Minnesota, actually, I take that back. It wasn't the 11 year old boy. It was the 11 year old boy's mother wrote a letter to Weird Al said, hey, it was so great to meet you at the Minnesota Twins baseball game last week. Here's that photo that you took with my son, little Johnny, and he had so much fun hanging out with you. And it was such a blast. And boy, it was just so great. Thanks so much. Here's the photo of us. You know, I I hope that you could sign it and send it back. And you look at the photo and it's some guy who looks like Weird Al, but is just definitely not Weird Al. Oh, wow. So uh, Weird Al signs the photo and sends it back to him, which I thought was, was great. So please tell me he was cool. Like he was uh, a cool I didn't guy. get to meet Weird Al. He was not there that day. So uh. that was, yeah. So, but, uh, but he did pay me. I don't remember what it was he paid me, but, you know, he paid me to answer his fan mail, which is pretty awesome. If I was to find out that Weird Al was a jerk, that would kind of break my heart a lot. His assistant seemed very happy, seemed lovely and seemed to enjoy working for him. So for, for whatever that's worth. Well, very, very influential guy, and uh, not to go too far off of our topic of this movie, but there's an amazing podcast called Hit Parade that Slate does, and they did a whole episode about novelty songs, and they go down a deep rabbit hole about Weird Al, and it's kind of illuminating, like, what Weird Al did. Like, I think it's easy to dismiss him because he's making funnier lyrics to songs that you already know. But really, he took the form of the novelty song that had been around for a long time and elevated it and turned it into a viable business and really moved culture. I, I think he's a pretty amazing guy. Word crimes is a work of art. It's really, it's really Ooh, amazing. Uh, tons of yeah. his stuff. Lots of his, because my son went through a Weird Al period, so we got to watch a lot of Weird Al. And he's really a, an extraordinarily talented musician and a talented lyricist. And I actually think Word Crimes is a good example where you're like, this guy actually does kind of have an axe to grind. He's not going to a dark, gritty place, but it's like words matter to him. And I, I appreciate that. You know, it's almost a joke, though, because I've had other opportunities to meet Weird Al in the past and have just always missed him. And then, believe it or not, this is such an L.A. story, but Weird Al came and performed three songs at my kid's school. And what I I know, isn't that just random? That's just like an L.A. thing. It's like, oh, you know, Weird Al lives around here. He's going to come perform at this like event. And he came and performed like, you know, with a band and did three songs, which is really funny because right before he got on stage, they didn't have any, you know, everything with the schools is all about security these days. They don't have any bathrooms that are open, so they have porta johns on the far end of campus. So me, I've got to like, you know what, hey, I'm going to go now before whenever Weird Al shows up. I'm going to go run to the other side of campus. Of course, the moment I left earshot of the stage, he shows up. And then the moment I got back, uh, he was done. So. Oh, man. <laughs> and they were like, you just missed him. So uh, it's one of those things. Anyway, hey, Ben, we should probably get to the interview. Here we go. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. We're doing something uh, slightly different today. Uh, usually we have a DP on, but today we have an amazing director and DP on, director Steve Pink and DP Bella Gonzalez, who have a current film out called The Wheel. I, I watched it on uh, Apple TV last night, but it's pretty much anywhere you can stream movies. Thank you so much for coming onto the show. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, so happy to be here. So when we're just talking to a DP, I feel like a lot of times the director is is a mythological person we're talking about and we're trying to find out how the connection happened. So tell me, how did the two of you uh, find each other? So once we started trying to spin up this little movie, which was very sub half a million dollars, you know, we were just looking around for people. This was in the very early months of the pandemic first year. And so, you know, just the concept of doing a film was a questionable or dubious proposition, you know, in general. But, you know, we got kind of got going and 
we had um, cast Amber Midthunder, who had read the script years before and knew the writer. And, you know, just for a series of like kind of little pieces of good luck, brought it together. And that included Bella, who had made a little movie with Amber. And so we're like, oh, well, that's a good connection. Let's look at the reel of the cinematographer who had just worked with Amber. And mm -hmm. then I saw the, you know, I watched Bella's reel and it was astonishing. Um, and what was astonishing about it, given the movie we were about to shoot, was how much emotionality was in the kind of simple portraits of things she was shooting and the way she lit them. And there was just so yeah. much of it. And so I was, so we met and I was like, we please shoot this film. It will be for no money up at a summer camp. We'll, <laughs> eat, we'll be eating food like out of styrofoam boxes. You'll have no resources. It's a dream come true. <laughs> How big of a trunk does your car have? We're going to be using it. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> Every car in my resource that would drive up to Big Bear with all my gear and a lot of favors from a lot of people that I really am so thankful for that made this movie happen. And it was so fun. I mean, I got to bring out all my best friends to make this movie. So it was really. Oh, great. It was exactly what I needed in this time. And also like getting to work with Steve. We had a great initial first conversation about it. It got me really excited. The things he wanted to do were in line with the things that all the things that I want to do when I make a movie. And most importantly, it was just like, we just want to tell this story. And to me, that's all you can ever ask for is just how can we best tell the story? How can the imagery be evocative? And how can we do it with like, you know, in this kind of small way where you have to really use your brain in order to tell the story the same way you would tell the story with all the resources and time and money in the world, which is so fun. We were just talking about it. So it's such a fun uh, proposition. And I think it really lends to how the movie is really fun. And for our listeners who haven't seen it, Steve, give me the pitch, the, the elevator pitch for it. So the wheel tells the story of a young couple who are in a romantic crisis. The relationship is in, a, in crisis. And so they decide to go for the weekend to an Airbnb to see if they can resolve their differences once and for all, either resolve their differences, I should say, or not. And there they meet another couple a bit older than them who are, they're engaged to be married and they seem to have a kind of very simple and pure and straightforward and uncomplicated love for each other. And over the course of the weekend, you know, the kind of complicated dynamic between the foursome ensues and um, all kinds of relationship strife also ensues. And then, you know, we get to see kind of how it all works out. And uh, Bella, you, you said earlier that it was a film that enabled you to do a lot of the things that you love to do or all the things that you love to do. Like, what, what are some of the things that the movie kind of enabled you to do? I think this movie was a lot of finding moments. It really was. It was like me and Steve sitting together, figuring out what the heart of the movie is, figuring out what the characters are thinking, what they're going through, their perspective, their lens on the world, how things would look to them. And then just knowing in our heart that that would guide us through. And so that meant mm -hmm. that every decision we made was based on what the person was feeling at that very moment in each scene. And that like really guided us through in terms of like Steve would block the scene. We would talk about what the important moment was, whose perspective are we trying to tell the story from at that time? Because we have, you know, kind of more ensemble moments in some of the film. And then letting us explore and find the way to tell the moment in the best way with the camera. A lot of this movie is just where the camera is. We lit some of it, but mostly it's moving the camera to be inquisitive of what the character is feeling and trying to get as intimate as possible or not, depending on the moment. And so I think it's mm. really like, 
It was a really fun exercise because sometimes I was talking to Steve about it earlier. Sometimes we'd block a scene and then we'd be like, all right, let's go. I, I was operating one camera and our A camera operator was Andrew LeBoy and he's someone I've worked with since I was coming up in this industry. He trained me when I was like 17. So we have like a deep connection. And it was like, you're going to carry this person and I'm going to carry this person and we know what we need to get from this moment. Now let's go and let's find it. I think that's one of the reasons the movie is the way it is, because we had this circle of trust. You know, Steve's watching, Steve's knowing what he needs, what we need to get, how we need to get it. And we're behind cameras with the characters locked in. And in that way, it's just this dance between the actors doing what they need to do and us trying to tell the story and get as intimate as possible. And, you know, I think when you make anything that is like the heart of the story is the most important thing, and that's going to guide all of your decisions, that's the best thing you can ask for, because that's what filmmaking is. You know, all you can hope is that you're really diving into people's internal dialogue and, and that you can portray that to an audience. And when someone's like, that is the number one priority of the filmmaking process on this film, you can't ask for anything better. And uh, Steve, you said this thing came together pretty quickly. Can you both talk about how you came up with the visual language of the film? Because like one of the things that I really loved about it is something you just don't see in movies very much is that it feels so spontaneous. It didn't feel fly on the wall, like unlit Dogma 95 style. It felt composed and lit and everything. But what you're describing, Bella, is exactly how it felt to me as a viewer, is that like I was kind of experiencing something that was like happening so quickly. How did you get to that language, you know, the visual language that you guys were... Uh, we're going to employ. Um, well, we tried to kind of, in, in retrospect, as Rebella did, as a fever dream of a certain time. She was, <laughs> because we were run, you know, we literally packed our own cars. The the vehicle in the um, in the movie that the main characters drive is my stepfather's Jeep. Oh, wow. Much of the wardrobe is my uh, wife's. Uh, all of the furnishings in the Airbnb was in our house. And <laughs> so, you know, and, and Bella was like busy you know, gathering as many practicals she could because so much of the movie at night is lit as practicals. And, and she was like, I just need as many, and I brought as many empty lamps as I could find, you know, even my own house, <laughs> like into closets. And I was like, so all the, all of that. And so once we had our little like band uh, together, I was very grateful for the opportunity that was before us, which was to only explore all of the elements and then try and make interesting and worthwhile decisions about them. Like for instance, you know, which is very different when you're doing a much bigger film. You're doing that, but there's so much else you're doing. And in this case, we're like, okay, so we have the forest. We have the environment. What does that mean to us? What does that mean for the characters? And it became for us like, okay, so the forest is a beautiful place, but yet there's all this stress that the characters are experiencing. So what is that juxtaposition of the beauty of the environment with the kind of stress and struggle that the characters are going through? And how do we capture that? So that was like one whole thing that we discussed, right? And then... One of the things we talked about, and Bella can pick up on this, is so much of what's between Albie and Walker, our two young, our young couple and main characters, is clean. We decided that we weren't going to do any overs between them, hardly ever. Um, if we did, we would come off and over and then push very slowly toward one or the other all the time. And so, because it, so, it created this emotional isolation, but at the same time, let you explore the kind of emotional reality of the character that you were isolating in the frame. So there were two things going on. They were isolated from the other person, and yet you were getting an intimate portrait of the person that you were capturing. And that was another whole thing we talked about. 
that was a joy because we, that's all we did all the time. You know, we had nothing else, you know, there was no, well, you know, we don't, you know, you don't have to have a discussion about how you're going to approach the shooting of a particular thing, because it was really just us, you know, mostly handheld one, you know, gaffer, one grip. I think there was like 18 people, uh, total in the crew plus the actors. So the entire electric department was Jasper and the entire grip department was Tom. And that goes on and on. Like the art department was Brianna. The makeup department was Sierra. It just goes on and just one person per whole department. So we, we really embraced that we could, we had to just only kind of talk about things in terms of their creative interest for us, which was itself just such a, an amazing thing to get to do. Did that open up like avenues to spontaneity that you you don't usually have? You know, like we talk to people who shoot Marvel movies and it's like, yeah, if they want to just go grab something, it's like, no, you got to steer the whole Titanic around to get it. But with that kind of a crew, if you're like, hey, it looks way cooler over that hill. Let's all run over there. Is it like, is, does it enable you to do that? Yeah, for sure. One, well, I'll just say this one thing. I'll turn it over to you, Bella. One of my favorite moments is at one point uh, we had to find the location for the altar, which is in between those two massive trees. and I was like, well, how are we going to do that? And I said to Bella, I was like, how about we just walk together through the forest? Just walk. Because we have no idea. We have, there's no analytical way or there's no way, there's no survey map. We're like, we don't know how we're going to approach. Why don't we just walk together and talk? And then we might come upon, it's wrong to say we might come upon two majestic trees because we didn't know we were going to come upon two majestic trees. We were going, we just <laughs> thought we would maybe come upon it. And that was, I have to say, I know it sounds kind of corny, but it was a beautiful experience because we walked and we discussed things and we were in a kind of created space. And suddenly before us were the two largest and tallest trees in the entire grove that we were working in. Massive, like, you know, probably hundreds of years older than all the other trees in that grove. So that was just one of those things. Like, not only do we not have a choice, but to location scout in this way, but let's make it a creative experience and see if that gets us to where we want to be or that we will arrive somewhere we want to be by, by virtue of that, you know, exercise. That's kind of the whole movie, how huh? I was like, there are certain things that like the film gods just bless upon you. Like that walk led us to the two biggest, oldest trees, stable, sturdy. I mean, there's just something about that when you think about it cinematically for a wedding altar and what it means for this movie. And I feel like that was everything that happened in this movie. It was kind of just a happy coincidence a meaningful experience. And that's kind of what crafted all these moments. Like the very first shots in the movie, we had shot our driving stuff day one. And then one day I think we were at some location and I was just looking at the sun and I was like, we should put them in the car. We should put a big branch. We should do a branch of Loris. We should shake the car. We should shoot high speed. And we should get these like little intimate moments of them. And I had no idea what it would be for. I mean, I thought maybe at some point in the movie or intercut with our driving stuff. And Steve and I were talking about it and we could not imagine another opening to this movie. Even mm. now, today, we've seen the movie probably hundreds of times. And I don't yeah. think that I could have ever thought there would be something as fitting as those moments to open the movie. I think that everything that we had to fight through to make work really is what makes this movie. And that's what I'm so grateful for. I think that's like the small movie mentality that I, that I will miss and enjoy and like savor every time I watch a movie like this. <laughs> How does making a movie like this, I mean, outside of just the 
technical world of you know having a smaller crew and uh having whatever resources that you had but like the mentality of doing it the spontaneity of it how does it differ from you know a lot of the other kinds of work you're both called on to do let's start with you uh bella if we could i think the really special thing about this movie and it's impacted the way i like to work even now no matter what the size is it wasn't about getting the perfect shot it wasn't about composing like the perfect image and lighting it to perfection and having it be something bigger than itself. It was really all about the emotion. So basically it was lighting the space so that the cameras can move, so the cameras can do what it needs to do to tell the story it needs to tell. And I think that's really liberating. And I feel like you lose that the more, the more resources you get, the higher the expectation of the product is, where our expectation was to just make a really solid little movie that explores the nature of relationships and the shifting of them and and something real to people that's timeless and that people can really interact with and put their own opinion on. I think that's the most important thing about this movie is everyone that watches it has their own story and lays it on and has an opinion about <laughs> who they think is right and who they think is yeah. wrong and what they think should have happened. And I think that that is because we really spent our time making sure that the camera was moving in the right way. And that meant that we were making the movie in a different way. It meant we weren't lighting everything. In fact, I feel like more so than not, it's just lighting the space. I feel like probably we were using two lights at the most for most things and really using the benefit of our locations. Uh, a lot of this was like trying to find the light at the right time and shooting it when we could and crafting it that way. And it's more crafting the emotion than crafting the perfect image. And I think that is something that you lose. And that's like the small crew thing is everyone's so involved and engaged. There wasn't one person that wasn't. And that's special because everyone was just in it for the 17, 18 days we were there, locked in. That um, was it? 18 days yeah. to shoot it? I think it's 18 oh days. Oh my God. <laughs> so tight. 18 days in a summer camp. <laughs> we had technically we had 21 but you know there are thunderstorms up in the up in the mountains in the summer which i was not aware of um it's not rain <laughs> as much as it is lightning really and so yeah and so <laughs> I've, I've lived in la for 23 years and i've not I've, i was i never even heard that that's fine we had not heard that uh until we were up there and the you know the lightning would be within five miles so we would just stop it'd be perfectly sunny where we were but there'd be this like rumbling thunder in the mountain next door with lightning and we couldn't shoot and then, of course, there were forest fires. There was one day where it was made these massive thundering helicopters. And, you know, they are so resonant and, and so loud that it would be almost three minutes from their passing. You could hear them out, you know, a couple of miles out, and then they would pass over us, literally over us, and then pass us and back and forth, big water helicopters. So that was a day. I, and, you know, they took our lunch break when we took our lunch break. So that's a little bit oh. like, we're like, wait. Yeah, why are you on the same schedule as us, uh, fire, you know, heroes of the forest? <laughs> Quite literally hosed. Oh, yeah. Man, that's <laughs> well, and it seems uh, like watching the movie, it seemed like there's a lot of uh, handheld. It's not verite. It's not like super long lens. But what I thought was interesting was where you chose, and it felt very strategic, places where you chose to use very elegant camera movement, like, you know, dolly or slider. I don't know what gear you had. But how much of that was decided ahead of time? How much of that was you guys figuring it out once you had the actors there in the scene and it was blocked? Uh, it sounds like it was both. But, like, the, the movie feels so organic 
and so organic to the characters that it, it's not like an Iron Man chase sequence where you can figure you can previs you can't previs an emotion. And what what you guys have and what a lot of movies don't have is that kind of raw, real interaction. So how much of that could you figure out ahead of time? I mean, I, I feel like it was zero percent um, did we figure out ahead of time <laughs> in terms of like, <laughs> like, but, I mean, but again, as, as, as Bella said earlier, we had like a, a, you know, we've had this philosophy, we had this approach that we were always going to concern ourselves with what was happening for the character in the moment, like what was happening to the character, what the, what was the character experiencing in any given moment, and le- that that's our guide. And so we did have the the Ronin as an option. So we're like, okay, we have two handheld cameras, and then we have this Ronin. That was that was those were our tools. So sometimes Bella would say, "Oh, well, you know," it's like, "Oh, how are we capturing this? You know, and what is the feeling we want to to try? What are we trying to express here?" And you know, Bella would say, "Well, okay, this is." We can try shooting it this way with the Ronin and see what happens. Um, like there's one example of that where they're coming back from the lake. And if, I don't know if you remember this fellow, we did all these different, like we did these, like they're walking through the woods and we did this like, you know, with the gimbal, we walked sideways. We like, we countered them, we followed them. We did all these things. And, you know, we were just running into all these problems because none of it was just capturing. I don't know why, but none of it was capturing exactly what we wanted. And and especially once we challenged ourselves to be like, oh, we're always going to be with it in the emotional perspective of the characters, that became very difficult. It was it became a great theory because it helped us, but then it became very difficult to determine how to actually do that sometimes. Like two people fighting as they walk. Okay, well, it seems like it's both of their perspectives. So then we shot both of their perspectives and then we shot a wide shot. So we got to see them walking through the woods. And and then I think, I'm sure it was you, Bella, because we were both like frustrated after 45 minutes of... <laughs> Of like still not getting what we wanted, even though the actors did it perfectly every single time. It's only a nine line scene and they're asked to like walk through the woods, you know, start at a starting point A and then through to B. And then Bella, I think, like, what if we're just on Walker? Just like we were just on Albie earlier when we were outside the convenience store. What if it's only from Walker's perspective? Only, only, only. No other, and we had already shot, you know, what would be great coverage for the scene. Like he could have cut it. I think we had six shots by that point. And you know, we could have just said, okay, we'll cut because it would definitely will, would cut. And then she found this frame that's super tight to Walker and Albie's just out of focus. And maybe she comes into focus. I'm not sure. I don't think so. And I feel like it's only Walker. And it, that's the only shot, the only shot we use. We don't cut to the wide. We don't do anything. We just cut straight to him tight. They're fighting. Albie's trailing along. It's a nine line scene. And that was that because we were with, we were with Walker and that was the right thing. And so sometimes it would take a while or sometimes to our own frustration, you know, almost an hour to find the frame that we, that was going to support the theory we had about how to tell the story. Yeah. It's much harder because you're locking yourself into no safety net. There was, it was very clear. There was no pickups on this movie. Everybody was booked right (laughs) after this movie. Amber was booked, Taylor was booked, I was booked, Steve was booked. Everyone was booked after this movie. So there was no going back to reshoot, pick up things. And that was a lot of pressure. And also it was like, we had made this deal, this pact with ourselves. And so anytime there wasn't something that felt 100% true to us, true to the movie, true to the characters, it was frustrating. And also it just, you really have to think in your brain about what is right to do. And that's such an exercise on its own is that you know, you're not going to have like traditional coverage there. It's not made in the edit. It's made on the day. Um, and that's a whole nother pressure. And but I also think that's something that makes this movie the way it is, 
So that's, yeah, that's what we would do. Like we would rehearse and like me, Andrew and Steve would be like, these are our tools. I think we had, we had two handheld cameras. We had a Ronin with master wheels. We had a four foot slider and we had a doorway dolly. I think we used the doorway dolly a total of twice. And basically sometimes so that I could watch what I was doing. If we were doing two handheld cameras, sometimes I'd put one on the Ronin and I'd have two monitors A and B in front of me and I'd be doing handheld on the Ronin so that I could watch A camera and B camera and try and, you know, figure out how, what we need and how to get it. And I will uh, never understand how, <laughs> how somebody like you can take your brain and do it like that breaks my head in half to think about trying to do something like that. It sounds impossibly complicated and, and uh, amazing that you're able to do that. Whenever I, it was pretty uh, cool. We, we talked to a lot of people who do stuff like that, and I'm just like, how? How can you even? I don't know. I I, I have a hard time, you know, watching one thing at a time, and and uh, it's just it's amazing. It's given me a unique ability. I mean, I love it. It's great. I'm, I, yeah. It was like two iris motors in front of me in case <laughs> I needed to adjust iris while we were shooting. Sometimes I'd have oh someone sitting God. next to me. I'd be like, close down to a two eight. Close down to a two eight. And I'm like doing it, watching That's A and crazy. B. It was really great. And so when I had that opportunity, I would do it so that I could kind of see both cameras and see what we were making. But a lot of the movie was handheld. Um, and, you uh -huh. know, I just really had to rely on Andrew, a boy. And he's like my go-to A-camera operator. He's on my job with me right now. And we forged a lot of that connection on the wheel because there was like a very developed sense of how we moved the camera. It was very mm -hmm. specific. If it didn't yeah. feel true to it, I'm pretty sure Steve would come up and be like, man, I think you got to make it a little more dreamy, a little more in our language. Like we would, we'd have to check each other. And even now, like sometimes on the show we're on now, I'll be like, man, I think it just needs a little bit of the wheel. And he's like, <laughs> I got you. I know how to give you that. <laughs> and so we all have this common understanding, especially like, like, and a few days in, I mean, I think some of our best work is like day two, day three. I think we really developed that language really fast and it felt right. And it felt right to all of us. And it made the process easier. Not easy, because like Steve said, it's like the really hard thing is once you make that pact to try and make your decisions really meaningful, <laughs> you have a lot of pressure to really do so, especially with scenes where we had like all four characters in them and trying to like keep the geography of the world and tell the story and move the camera in a meaningful way and keep the lighting good and have me operate the camera. It's a lot of elements stacked into a very short time to try and get everything and, you know, make sure you have the movie in the edit. But it's exciting. I mean, I watch it now and I just, it means a lot more to me than I think other things because you're so engaged. Like now I don't really operate anymore. And something like that makes me miss it. Just like that connection. It's like that dance, <laughs> you, can, you know? You can always go back. <laughs> <laughs> Only for Steve. <laughs> if Steve asks me, I will operate. <laughs> I remember like we tested, we camera tested our lenses so we tested like probably six or seven types of anamorphics we were pretty certain we were going to do anamorphic and I, I went handheld for the test which I feel like is rare I feel like usually it's like with a chart and the lights and a backlight and you're doing it in this like traditional way and here I am on my knees ducking with the camera putting a diopter on getting like three inches from people's faces and then I set it to music that I thought was the tone of the film. And I sent it to Steve and I was like, he's either going to really respond to this or he's not. <laughs> and I was like, this is what I think the movie is. Um, and <laughs> I remember him calling me and I was like, oh, oh no. <laughs> and he answered. And he was like, that's the movie. Like these lenses, 
this movement, this is the movie. And I feel like it all started from there. And it was, I remember it being very magical because it was a big risk, I think. Like usually you want to give people a standard to look at so that they can pick. But I, I felt like just from our initial conversations, I kind of like could see the vision that he had and how I thought we could capture it in that way. And I just remember it being a really special moment when he called me and like knowing what the lenses were and like knowing how we were going to shoot it because it was really decisive. It was like we had a few things we were really choosing between. I think we like really thought about the Hawk V lights, but they were like a little bit too clean and contrasty. And we looked at the Kawas and they were a little bit too bendy. And like we went through it and we landed on the Hawk C series and just they're a little bit more vintage, a little bit more character, a little bit more flawed. And I, mm. I just remember thinking, I don't know if this thought ever actually came out of my mouth, but I just remember thinking our characters are so flawed and I w- and we're really <laughs> trying to capture our characters in this way that's true to self. And Steve responded to them and so did I. And I just remember having that like initial, like we knew that these were the right lenses. And I just remember that camera test really like solidifying in me how we were going to approach this movie, which is so exciting because to find something that you know, the, we only had two weeks. It was like, yeah, Steve called me. And I think two weeks from his calling me, we were f- driving out. Oh, my so God. It was a pretty That's fast. That's insane. Prep. That's so fast. <laughs> yeah. So to find a movie that close after the call, I think is really cool and speaks to like just the magnitude of being able to talk shop with people and just talk about the story and talk about how, you know, we think it should be and what might work and what tools we want to try and um, what qualities we were looking for and, and the tools that we were going to use. And I don't think I've ever had that kind of collaboration with somebody. And like I said, it, it continued on to set because I couldn't have done all this. I couldn't have operated. You know, I was lighting with, <laughs> with my one guy and one guy on each team. So oh, you really needed to be so locked into each other and understanding of how what we need to do to make this and and be on the same terms of what we were making. And that came really early into the process, which is really rare. I remember having like that Malik-esque discussion where we were like, the Malik-esque nature of this is that we have to always have our eyes open for the moments that we need to capture to make this movie what it's going to be. I remember sitting at a picnic table and being like, we always have to watch out for what's happening and we just have to be ready to have the camera on it. Hmm. <laughs> and those were our prep moments, not like traditional shot listing, not like references. It was like... If there's like a tree and a spider on it, we have to get it. If someone is sitting in a way that is like emotionally evocative in this part of the movie, we have to get it. And that those were our conversations. And and yeah, I, I think about that all the time. I think about it now. I think that's the skill that I try and bring. You know, I try and offer some skill when I <laughs> do these that's, you know, somewhat unique to myself. And I think that it's a lot of that. It's trying to look into the world and and really immersing yourself in the character's perspective. And once you do that, you're going to see things in a different way. And I try and like take that with me on every job. I mean, the wheel was, in my eyes, was like the shooting point in which my career just like took off. I, it, it's a lot to do with Steve and a lot to do with the confidence that Steve instilled in me during that job. And so I take a lot of aspects from the movie, but I take more aspects from the relationship that I formed with Steve and and all my really great friends that came out to do that movie with me. And it's something I'll always forever hold dear to my heart. Wow, that that's amazing. That's really nice of you to say, Bella. I uh, <laughs> I gained as much from you as you're, as you're saying today, maybe because I make me cry. Right. Yeah, I haven't. Got, <laughs> I I didn't get the opportunity to work with the cinematographer in the way we were together, and, and that was just great. You know, because. 
you're so talented and you care so much. Well, I cannot ask any question that will top that. So I think we should go ahead and wrap it up before we go. Steve, where can people find you and your work online or Twitter, Instagram, wherever people can find you? Well, sadly, my social media is just not happening. It means you have like six more productive hours in the day than the rest of us. So yeah, I mean, I I'm on Instagram and I think the only stuff I have on my Instagram page is there's a page is, um, (laughs) is, uh, the wheel it's, I'm easy to find if they have any interest at all in anything I've done ever, they can IMDB me and look at the stuff I've done. (laughs) Yeah. How about you, Bella? Where can people uh, find you online or, or see your work? My Instagram is Bella Gonzalez DP. Mm-hmm. Um, and my website is bellagonzalez.com. And I'm very excited. I have a bunch of stuff coming out soon. It's so funny how it works. Like you make all this stuff for years and it all comes out at the same time. It's very fun. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I'm looking forward to all that. Excellent. I guess I should say my Instagram. I think it's also Steve Pink. It is. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> We'll put a link to it in the show notes when the show comes out. I I just can't encourage people enough to check out the film. Uh, Again, I saw it on Apple TV, but you can currently rent it in any number of places, including Amazon Prime, Apple TV, YouTube. It's it's pretty much wherever you get pay-per-view stuff, it's there. Definitely great work. Honestly, very inspirational to talk to both of you. Thank you both for coming on the show, and uh, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. All right, so that was Steve Pink and Bella Gonzalez. Thank you both so much for coming on the show. Can't wait to see whatever both of you do next. That was one of those interviews, and it reminded me a little bit of uh, the Seamus McGarvey interview, where it was like, oh, yeah, this is supposed to be fun. I sometimes forget that. They make making that film sound like so much fun, and making a film, uh, it should be fun. I mean, it's a lot of work, and it's it can be stressful, and you're fighting schedules, but, like... I worked with a producer for a long time named Kat Paziak, and I remember one time I was under all this pressure to get the shoot done, and so, you know, it took however long it took to light the scene or whatever, and I'm just clock watching, and I was, like, not focused on the actors, and she was like, she pulled me aside and said, we're here for the actors, you know, right? Like, this is where you get to actually do the job, and uh, it was nice to be reminded of that, and, and I kind of thought about that a little bit while talking to these two, because I feel like this is a movie that's all about performance, all about character, and uh, and stars. Uh, I buried the lead. Stars Amber Mid Thunder, who uh, just became you know the biggest action star on earth with Prey. That's right. Yeah, uh, which I just watched and, and loved. And boy, did oh. I actually! I saw a hot tub time machine in the in the theater, and uh, <laughs> that also looks like a movie that was so much fun to make. I, I hope it was fun to make. But yeah. I, I based on talking to Steve Pink, I I get the sense that one of the things he does is create a set where people feel loose and not like under tight scrutiny and not like they're going to get fired if they do the wrong thing for two seconds. I don't know. I He seems like the kind of director that you want to work for because he wants it to be fun. And I think a lot of people, again, you, you fall into this habit of clock watching and like, OK, well, you know, we owe this many shots. We got to work, work, work. And now, short ends. All right, well, Ilya, it is that time for our pet obsession of the week, our short ends. What is your pet obsession this week? My pet obsession is actually the Short Shorts Film Festival and Asia 2023. 
So this festival, if you win a particular category, it, they'll make you a millionaire. They'll make you a millionaire with yen. It, they actually pay you a million yen. Now, you, you probably know this about me, that I'm a little bit of a Japanophile, and uh, Tokyo is actually my favorite city in the world. Like, if there was one city I was going to go visit in the world, it, it would be Tokyo. And they've got the Tokyo short film competition, and it's kind of an incredible competition. I'm going to throw it out here to everyone who uh, might have some sort of connection with Tokyo or interest in Tokyo. You have to shoot this competition that will give you a million yen, which I think right now is probably about $7,000. It's, you know, it's it doesn't entirely change your life, but it's really a ni- nice, nice little thing here. Um, it costs nothing to enter. It's free. The theme of your short must be Tokyo, but you don't have to show the real Tokyo or even shoot in Tokyo. And depictions can be based on your imagination or fiction. So uh, they give you some examples of like films that could be like, you know, either shot in or around Tokyo, but films depicting locations or objects based on an image of Tokyo, films depicting Tokyo 100 years from now, uh, and it's not required to premiere in Japan. It can be any genre. The only real specification on here that I think that's going to be of a concern to, to, to people is going to be that it must be under 25 minutes, uh, including credits. Uh, it doesn't have to have been produced this year. It can be produced anywhere in the world. It must either be in English or Japanese. And if it isn't, I think you have to have subtitles. And then that's it. You submit it, which costs nothing. You So you upload the file, and if you win, you get a million yen. And I feel like with all of those lack of restrictions, might as well come up with something, put it together, and send it off. So I've really kind of been spending you know, the last couple of days thinking about what would my submission be for, for Tokyo. And now I'm, um, I'm thinking that maybe, uh, maybe I'll make a little thing and send it off and become maybe a, a million yen heir. A million heir. That's it. A million. It was right there, man. <laughs> it was. You I, I had to set you up like that so you could knock it home. <laughs> anyway, so Ben, what's your short end this week? I got a good one. I can't wait. I got a great one. All right, I'm buckling in. Okay. It's a documentary. Okay. It's on Disney Plus. What? <laughs> it's directed by Lawrence Kasdan. What? Okay. And it's called nature documentary. No, it is called light and magic. And it's about industrial light and magic. The entire history of ILM, which for those of you who don't know, ILM was founded by George Lucas to do the groundbreaking special effects for the first star Wars movie. And they were kind of one of the first VFX houses in, in Hollywood period. Their first office was probably about a mile and a half from where I'm sitting right now. It was in Van Nuys. And, well, I know where uh, their second office was. Yeah, it was <laughs> up in, 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 in uh, yeah, in Marin County. And it's, uh, I think, six episodes. I was like, I'll check this out for a minute. And then I started watching it. And I should have known, Lawrence Kasdan directed it. Not exactly a slouch when it comes to storytelling. And they have interviews with everybody who had anything to do with George Lucas or ILM during all those years. So you've got your George Lucas, you got your James Cameron, you got your Ron Howard, you got your Steven Spielberg. And then they have like all the guys who were way in uh in the, even the early days, a lot of stuff with Phil Tippett. Phil Tippett is like a heartbreaking character. He's all heart. I love Phil Tippett. Uh but then like Joe Johnston, Ken Ralston, uh, Richard Edlund, John Dykstra, like all these people who are titanic in stature you know right down to steve spaz williams and 
it basically I would say that like for the most part it charts from the first Star Wars movie to Jurassic Park and then it kind of yada yada yadas from Jurassic Park through the current day I mean like they go into a lot of stuff they show a lot of the innovations that they created for Mandalorian and stuff like that but really the major moments of innovation that were happening and Ilya I think you would just eat this up they're showing how these people created motion control camera rigs in their in their college dorms you see the films that these people made on Super 8 that got them hired by ILM starring themselves and uh, you know John Knoll creator of Photoshop I didn't I should have known this but I didn't know this he he's not the creator of Photoshop but he's one of them Photoshop was created by ILM did you know that no, I did not know that. I'm a big fan of Photoshop, but had no idea and have used it since version 1.0. But that's yeah, one bit of trivia I never knew. They basically created it back. I uh, I want to say it was if they didn't create it for the abyss, it was something that they were dicking around with when they made the abyss and it enabled them to do a lot of the stuff that they did. Uh, they created morphing. And I, I, I went back and tried to figure out if they were saying Ron Howard had coined the term morphing or if they had coined the term morphing but they spelled it with an f the ph came later the the stuff that they did for star wars the stuff they did for the empire strikes back and it sort of charts how they start with physical effects and gradually transition to computer-based effects and at a certain point they get rid of all their physical effects stuff and it's kind of sad but they did like basically offer anyone who was in the model shop or whatever training on computers some of them didn't want to do it because they like making models Honestly, every second I, I was just eating everything up. It was so fascinating to see to see it and to kind of relive these moments from Raiders of the Lost Ark and young Sherlock Holmes and the Abyss and T2 and, and all the stuff that these people had innovated. And you kind of realize, I don't want to sell it too hard, but like they invented modern movie making, really. And George Lucas himself, someone who's like movies I haven't been a huge proponent of, like I like obviously love the original Star Wars and Indiana Jones, but I feel like I attribute a lot of that to the other people who were brought on. You know, the Star Wars prequels, wasn't a big fan of any of that. But you realize that George Lucas was just like behind the scenes pushing technology in ways that we all benefit from. So like he was the one who was like, we should be digitally editing and created uh, the edit droid. And I don't know what the pathway was from that to Avid, but he was the one who was saying we have to figure out a random access way to have our footage so that we're not digging through a bin to find four frames of, you know, a a guy putting a coffee cup on a table. He was the one who was like, why are we doing it like this? And so, you know, things like video editing, audio editing digitally were uh, I, I feel like he does not get enough credit for being the person who is pushing that envelope for decades and where we are right now i feel like owes a humongous debt to george lucas and you realize ilm wasn't just this side project of his i feel like ilm was the project for him and he was a technologist who sometimes made movies not the other way around uh you know i lived in northern california for a long time and i never worked at ilm but i worked with a lot of people who worked at ilm and i knew a lot of people who worked there and i I did get to go out for a little bit and i met Rick McCallum and George Lucas on Red Tails because they used one of our modified Canon 7D cameras early on. And I got to say that I'm really interested in this documentary. I totally want to check it out now. But you, you mentioned Edit Droid. Is the Edit Droid featured or shown in this documentary? Yes, it is. Okay. So uh, have you ever seen an Edit Droid in person? I have not. 
Okay, so when you see it in person, you realize how much madness it is. It is absolute madness. And if it comes from George Lucas, there is a, a bit of madness in him, which is uh, amazing because it is a wall of VCRs. It's a wall of three quarter inch umatic decks or SVHS, but I think three quarter. And there, there was one installed at uh, American Zoetrope in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And when I saw it, it, it must have been 90 of these that are all set together. And the, the way it worked is it was nonlinear editing in a linear format. You had the, you know, like 90 copies of your footage. And then you programmed all of these different VCRs that were hunting and rewinding and fast forwarding so that you could watch like your entire feature. If you had all of your footage on these tapes without having to change tapes by hitting play and they would constantly be cycling and fast forwarding and rewinding to get to exactly the right moments to show you the right thing in a seamless sort of manner. And uh, it like the the I'm, I'm guessing that the maintenance on that must have been crazy because I have to imagine they were probably really, really rough on the tapes. But, uh, I, but yeah, I always it, thought it was uh, laser discs. I always thought that they were like video, big video discs, not VHS tapes, but they don't show that in the documentary. No, it's it, anyway. So I met Rick and George and I got to say that all of them have this little bit of like they're serious about what they're doing. They're serious about movies and everything. But there is this little bit of like we are always on the bleeding edge, whatever it is, it's on yeah. the bleeding edge. And I, and I met the the head of post-production over, uh, over there. And it was really mind blowing to actually have these conversations with these people because whatever technology is of the moment, these guys are into, they're into whatever it is, even if they're not using it, they want to know about it. They want to see if they can leverage it. Yeah. They want to figure out how it can fit in. They're just such a factory of extremely high level work. Uh, I, I'm excited. I'm, I'm thank you for med- telling me about this. I, I had no idea it existed. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it was something where I was like, I was assuming it was going to be kind of a be a hagiography where they were going to gloss over the rough edges of what had happened. But I was actually kind of surprised and and maybe a little heartbroken when they went into deep detail about like what happened to Phil Tippett on Jurassic Park, for instance, which is mm-hmm. kind of a sad chapter because Phil Tippett, who was like the master of stop motion animation, um, Steve Spaz Williams uh, basically figured out how to make dinosaurs in a computer. And that was going to be a huge stop motion show. And he just got the rug pulled out from under him, not just on that job, but basically like your whole life's work is obsolete now. And he kind of talks pretty frankly about how that hit him, you know. And also John Dykstra talks about after the first Star Wars and uh, they were gearing up for Empire Strikes Back and he was not brought back. And he was like the guy who kind of led the charge on the first Star Wars movie but also had kind of rubbed uh, George Lucas the wrong way and George didn't bring him on. It's just a, it's a fascinating story. And, and honestly, it gave me probably more respect for George Lucas than I've had in a long time watching this and realizing what he's enabled everyone to do. Like me, you, everyone. We, we're all kind of living in the filmmaking universe as George Lucas kind of conceived of it because it was the right way to go. But I don't think it would have gotten there without him. Hmm. That's really interesting. I can tell you that there was uh, a lot of plans to essentially be able to be self-sufficient entirely without Hollywood. Like the intention yeah. for them was like, we want to bring all of the technology that we need to to do everything we possibly can in-house so we can do everything 
ourselves. We're not going to be reliant on outside vendors. We're not going to be reliant on on the industry at large. And of course, uh, their their projects were, uh, you know, Lucasfilm's projects were almost always distributed by by someone else. And eventually they, they sold the company. But uh, I have to say that the original impetus, the idea behind building all that infrastructure that they built I see trickling down now to the individuals, to trickling down to yeah. you know anyone who wants to, and and you probably need to look no further than than YouTube. The amount of stuff that people can now do in their office, their garage, their their bedroom. When you hear stories about like you know how they made a sky captain in the world of tomorrow, I mean that was quite a few years ago, but like a lot of that was produced like in one small little place. It's not going to be too long before I'm going to say it right now that there's going to be volumes. There's going to be like, you know, all kinds of uh, virtual cinema capabilities and AI that's going to allow people to create incredible stuff without the sort of like big, heavy infrastructure that usually goes along with it. We're not there yet, but it's getting closer and closer to the day where production value from your office can match the production value of, you know, uh, the biggest blockbusters in the world. And I think that for enterprising people who want to do the work you can figure out ways like if you just dick around enough on youtube and you check out the guys i always talk about at corridor crew or film riot or cinecom.net there are all these people who are showing you here's how to do all this crazy shit that would have been physically impossible in 1985 and now you know you and a dslr you can do it together if you make something with your phone and it's awesome, people will watch it. If you make something that's shitty with your phone, no one will watch it. And also, sometimes people make stuff that's shitty and everyone gets excited about it. And I'll and I'll, I'm sitting on the side, scratching my head, wondering why people care. But yeah, you know, I prefer living in a world where these tools are accessible and people can try different stuff. And a thousand percent, and and, and, thousand and fail percent. and fail and fail. And you know, the thing is, like, if you watch the Cinecom.nets and the film riots and whatever, they show you how to do great stuff. And they might have also made great short films or features or whatever. But like a lot of times they're just showing you an example of something that in a vacuum, it's like, yeah, that's cool. You did this cool effect. But like, so what? Tell me a real story. And that's not what they're about. They're about like giving you tips and tricks. And, and clicking on their affiliate code. That's really what it is. Get yeah, my yeah, affiliate yeah, they're, code. They're there to get, get you to. Get me sub- some more views sub- so YouTube yes. will pay me. Subscribe yes. to Storyblocks. Um, but, uh, but no, but I mean, I, th- I think that they're, uh, definitely well-intentioned, but a lot of times I'll watch it and I'll be like, yeah, but that's not telling a story. Like that's not filmmaking. That's film technique, which you need to have nothing wrong with having technique. But the, I, I think that what's interesting about, uh, to loop back again to the, uh, to light and magic is that they're constantly talking about like the story required that we do this. So we had to like invent a whole new technology to do the thing, the story needed. And yeah, exactly. I, I appreciate that. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I, I love that. I, I wish yeah. everyone started from that. I wish everyone started from the point of like, what is actually needed to, you know, for this commercial, what's needed for this story, what's needed for this corporate video, what's needed for whatever it is. If they started there and went that way versus like, Hey, how can we unmotivate this camera move in 360 degrees for the next three minutes? So yeah. it's like. It's also I, I interesting never... to like look at shots from Star Wars and like see like the tiny room in the garage in Van Nuys where they were filmed, you know, because like to me, these images from the Star Wars movies were, you know, like just brought to the earth, fully formed, sprung forth from the head of Zeus. Like they weren't <laughs> these weren't like shots that some dudes in a garage in Van Nuys figured out how to do with some cardboard. This is real stuff. 
And so it's kind of fun to see it demystified like that because I, you know, that's another thing. As a filmmaker, you can find ways to. I get it in my head. I won't speak for anyone else. I get it in my head that this stuff has to be complicated and it needn't be. That hundred percent true. A hundred percent true. Sometimes stuff is just uh, grinding it out in effort and it's not necessarily complicated, but it's getting it exactly right. And and that's the one thing that uh, I love about the filmmaking process. And I know we've had people on the show who've, who've echoed the exact same thing in their interviews. It's that filmmaking should really be about intention. It's really like, you know, we intended to do this and we strove really hard to get there and not this sort of like, well, we kind of did this thing and figured it out and hoped for the best. Yeah. And, and, and let me tell you, I think you always, you always know when you're watching something like that, like you, you know, in your heart of heart, it's like, yeah, there wasn't any intention. They just kind of like threw slapped some stuff together and called it a day. And that, that I feel like, you know, I've been cheated. My time has been stolen from me when I, when I see stuff like that, that didn't have an intention. You can absolutely put stuff together, or as they say in the industry, polish a turd. You can polish a turd really, really, really well, but yeah. that's still at the end of the day, a turd. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't <laughs> get it doesn't become a diamond. It doesn't, you know, wonderful. the Mythbusters proved you could polish a turd. Anyway, I, know, I, I watched that. It's, it's a great episode. So. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, I think that that's enough about that, but everyone check that out. If you have Disney plus, if you don't have Disney plus, like get a free trial of Disney plus or something and watch it. Cause it's so great. Anyone who likes this podcast will love this documentary. And you know what? Go to our website. Go to Cam Noir, where uh, our producer, Alana Cody, is putting in links to all these things that we talked about. There's going to be the film festival uh, submission, which, by, by the way, that thing doesn't the deadline for that. It's not until January 31st of 2023. So you got months and months and months if you want to submit. She'll have the ILM documentary mm-hmm. in there. We'll also put our featured guests. Everything's there. So go to CamNoir.com. Click on this episode to find links to everything that we talked about. So, Ilya, uh, speaking about links and finding things, where can people find you? That was a clunky uh, can, segue in my life. Go on. You, you can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com. I'm actually going to be there on a weekend coming up here soon, uh, building our new lens projection room. So that's, a, that's, a, that's a whole project. I'll be there for 48 hours, probably just like, you know, doing all kinds of drywalling and stuff. It'll be fun. Fun. Uh, you can find me at benrock.com and you'll find all my social media links. Uh, many people from the podcast have been uh, finding me on social media and adding me and saying hello. So hello to all of you. Thank you so much for, uh, for your interest in the show. Uh, before we go, Ilya, uh, who should we thank? Let's thank Alana Cody, who's, uh, you know, busily putting in all those links probably as we speak right now. Uh, let's thank Ben Katz, who is editing all of uh, our voices and making us sound, uh, well, better than, than yeah. we really do. And then um, <laughs> let's also thank uh, Kay Zalatrachi, who did all the music that you heard in this episode and maybe working on something new for us. So Ooh, we'll, we'll, we'll see. That's intriguing. Yeah, well, that's yeah, intriguing. I know. It's- yeah. Definitely go check out Kay's work at musicbykays.com and for for God's sakes, somebody just message him on his website and tell him you love the podcast. Just one person, please. Just do it. It'll take you two minutes. Really, it's not a big deal. It'll make Kay's day. Cost you nothing. Uh, ben, I think that's just about it for this episode. Uh, you want to sign us off? Yes. We will see you next week. Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Mm